and Isabel joins me on the programme. Hi, Isabel. Good to have you aboard. Hi, you say, thank you so much for having me on and especially to talk about this particular story, because as you said so rightly, it is a slightly different um, story in tone and content yes. than the, the, the COVID revelations. The point of this story is about our relationship with China, with Beijing. And for many years, defence experts have been warning persistently that China, China presents the perhaps a single greatest threat yes. to, you know, the rules-based the ultimate threat, yeah, our, our way of life. And lately, Rishi Sunak has been striking the right kind of tone as far as defence experts are concerned, saying actually the end of the golden era of relations between our two countries. That's his public position. Privately, what this story reveals is that at the highest echelons of government, we are still very nervous of upsetting the Chinese, even in the pages of a former minister's memoirs where the cabinet office was went to great lengths to say, actually, don't say this, don't say that, don't say the other, even if it's quite minor stuff, because we don't want to upset the Chinese, this will cause diplomatic ructions. In particular, they didn't want Matt Hancock suggesting that the COVID pandemic began with a leak from a research laboratory in Wuhan. Uh, they suggested, the Cabinet Office, they said they revealed that the British government's view is that the proximity of the lab, which is the world's leading coronavirus research lab, to the first case of COVID in a patient is purely coincidental. I think entirely coincidental is the words used. So, so, now, let me, let, so let me ask you, Isabel, when you say, you know, the government wanted, you said matters to be redrawn or rebriefed or described in a different way or erased or whatever it is, and you said, you know, some of them quite minor matters. But I suppose what really, really is important and signifies here is whether they were replacing the truth with lies or whether they were whitewashing the truth, whether they knew what they were changing to be true, but still preferred to change it anyway. So how how much would the government have known that what they were changing was actually fact or actually true or would stand up? And how much was it a pretty hazy load of allegations and suggestions anyway that nobody could stand up as true in the first place? Well, that's a really interesting question. So let's start with the COVID lab leak. The FBI very recently actually said that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that it was probably the source of the pandemic. Other US intelligence agencies and organizations have come out with similar um, conclusions, although conclusion is too strong a word to put. You know, they, they've cautiously said this is probably what happened. Our intelligence agencies have never commented on this matter. MI6 hasn't said anything, MI5 hasn't said anything. So we haven't until today really had any idea what the UK government's position is on this. And of course, whether the Chinese accidentally, or some people may imagine deliberately, but whether they were responsible for the pandemic has such enormous implications, doesn't it? Yes, if, huge. if it's their fault, um, particularly if they, they were sloppy in their biosecurity in a research lab. Well, you know, Trump, I think, recently asked for billions or trillions in reparations. So there's huge geopolitical implications. 
In this um, negotiation between the Cabinet Office and Matt Hancock over what he could and couldn't say in his book, and that's a normal process for minister, former ministers when they write their memoirs, Downing Street seemed to inadvertently let slip because it was a bracketed thing, you know, very small extra paragraph saying, actually, we think it's entirely coincidental, the lab and the first case. I am not sure whether that's what they really think or whether actually they just want people to think that's what they think. Because, of course, Beijing watches very carefully everything and they have their ways and means of punishing anyone who steps out of line. So I don't know whether the government, the UK government, really thinks it's coincidental or they think, mm, actually, I think we'd better just say we think it's coincidental. So the, the phrase used, it may not be yours because it's a headline, not, not part of your excellent copy, but the, head, the, the headline is, uh, China is not one of our allies, so why are we terrified of tweaking this dragon's tail? But from what you've just said about, you know, China, as and I quote you, has ways and means of dealing with this kind of a thing. And, you know, if you irritate them or insult them or they deem that you have or you say something they, they don't want you to have said, you know, the repercussions, permutations can be dot, 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 but definitely bad. You know, it's going to be a bad thing. Mm. Isn't that why they don't tweak the tail? Because because the repercussions could be incredibly bad. And uh, I don't know what, what people really think they'll be at an immediate level, but at the, uh, the, the most expansive level, heaven forfend some kind of nuclear wor world war. Or just an escalation in the already, you know, industrial scale of espionage, you know, yeah. all the stuff that they're already doing, crawling all over our critical national infrastructure, infiltrating our universities and so on. Um, Look, why don't we tweak the tail? I think we need to tweak the tail. We've already seen uh, what happens if you don't stand up to an aggressor like President Putin. You know, they think that they can go into Ukraine and, and literally take over a sovereign nation. And the Chinese are much more subtle about the way they take over other countries. I mean, not for, not for no reason are they being labelled the evil empire. I mean, this is a a country, a regime, I should say, that is effectively colonizing the world in the way that we, you know, we now apologize quite rightly for many aspects of our empire, and it all feels like a, a thing very much of the past. Mm -hmm. The Chinese are creating a whole new empire. Um, and, you know, in some cases, it's more subtle than others, whether it's buying up, creating, building harbours, building roads, building airports in poor countries, which are then beholden to them, or whether it's just crawling all over, as I say, our, um, you know, our utilities here, for example. I was just going to say, our water companies, is it more extensive than, is it effectively owning the British water supply? Do they own other crucial utilities in this country? Well, um, I need to refresh my memory on all this. And if you're interested, you'll have to get our colleague, Richard, Tyson because he's brilliant on all of this he knows exactly who owns what with all the I am interested and everyone always is people are always astounded by how much well, it's, of the it's extraordinary I mean he would have the figures right off the top of his head right. you know what they own but it is incredible I mean if effectively we the British have given up you know the majority share of most of this stuff often to Chinese uh, investors Isabel, obviously you've scored one of the greatest news coups in the last week and a half that we've seen for years. I suppose the MPs' expenses was the last major coup of that dimension. You've sent shockwaves roaring through Downing Street and far beyond. Um, 
Obviously, we are still awaiting the result of the extremely long-taking inquiry into the government and the way in which it handled the pandemic. You said that uh, in other countries, if you look at France, if you look at Italy, if you look around, if you look at Sweden, they've got their report in, it's on the table and everybody knows what to do about it already. They've moved far more swiftly than we have. And you said that you thought it was in the public interest for uh, ordinary members of the public to know what was going on in this whirlwind WhatsApp exchange during the pandemic. What do you think as the dust very gradually begins to settle a little on the bombshell that you unleashed, what do you think and hope will be the lasting effects of your decision to do this? Because it was your decision and yours alone to expose all this correspondence. Yeah, and sure, and I've, I've paid some price for that, and that's okay. I'm really willing to do that because I think this is so important. So here's what I hope and what I really think I'm optimistic this has achieved. I think I've, I and we and all of those who've been involved in this have shifted the dial a little bit in terms of the uh, public attitudes towards just blithely following orders and trusting that the government has got everything right and that they always are taking you know the scientific evidence and all of that that they that they have that they don't need to be questioned i think is what i'm saying so there was very very little um skeptical media scrutiny of the repeated lockdown policies and other aspects of the response and i think if and when there is a next time, and of course we all hope that there isn't, we will not so easily just default and slip into the most extraordinary authoritarian regime as we did during the pandemic that we've all been through. So that that's the main thing, you know, that next time more questions are asked and maybe we have to do some of the same things again, but we're not just going to accept it quite so readily. Um, the, the second thing is I hope that we've accelerated a little bit the time frame for the public inquiry, though I would really like to see a deadline. I think people deserve a specific time frame, not just warm words. Uh, and the third thing is that I hope um, that, we, that the many, many people who had a dreadful time during lockdowns and, and felt instinctively uh, that something was very wrong about the response now feel to to some extent if not vindicated that they weren't going mad at that time and i hear from so many ordinary people the letters that have come in you know from people saying thank you for for confirming what i feared and thought and my whole family thought i was mad because i objected to this and you know i thought i was going crazy but actually i was right aspects of this were really deeply flawed so I think for some people, it's just given them a feeling that actually they weren't going crazy. And, and finally, for children, here's what I hope, that we never again lapse so easily into accepting school closures. Time and time again, schools being closed, there should never again be a default to homeschooling without the most grave threat and justification. One of the things that has surprised me about the tidal wave of reaction to your decision has been the obsession, in my view anyway, among particularly politicians, but also pundits and journalists, the obsession with the mechanics of your having done it, the way in which you did it, the place in which you did it, and all the sort of housekeeping details of you 
and you're doing it and then an almost willful determination to ignore the content of the WhatsApp messages themselves and the huge implications of those. And I found myself kind of explaining, for example, to um, David Meller, to Lord Vasey, look, you know, what Isabella Oakeshott chose to do and where she did it and why she did it, that's the most minor and insignificant part of this. Surely the most major and important part is, you know, decisions of maximum impact on so many millions of people taken on the hoof, talking about following the science and then just uh, at whim, mercurially ignoring the science completely, condemning people, for example, children in schools, little kids, to having to wear masks just because nobody wanted to take Nicola Sturgeon on in, a, in an argument. I mean, time after time, what you revealed showed the implications for ordinary people of these decisions taken ad hoc in the most peculiarly confused way without the science behind them. And yet, most commentators chose to focus on you and what you did rather than what the WhatsApp messages showed. I have been personally pretty appalled by that, actually. I have thought that it showed uh, an unbelievable skewing of priorities and an unbelievable lack of consideration for ordinary people and the population and what we've had to go through. I found it just remarkable. Maybe you are so used to this kind of thing that you haven't been surprised by it. No, uh, I have been surprised by the scale of it, but it's in proportion to the impact the story made. So that's the comfort of this. If people are lashing out to this extent, they're bashing at me, then that's because I have made an impact and they've got to react in some ways. Uh, and, you know, it's much easier and lazier uh, to, to shoot the messenger, as it were, than it is to confront your own failings in holding the government to account during this period. And many questions have been asked of me about trust. Will people trust me again? Well, I would turn that round and say, will people trust you, my critics, again, to ask the right questions of a government during the pandemic? Can anyone trust you in the media to do your job if you'd rather, and you think your priority should rather be, keeping these enormous secrets of politicians. I'm not in this as a political journalist to be in some cosy club and be invited to the salons and be super trusted to keep secrets. I'm in the business of breaking stories that are in the public interest. And if I have to take a bit of a bashing for that from some armchair critics who don't break stories and never face these ethical dilemmas, then that's a price I'm willing to pay. I don't think that there's anything heroic about that. That is just what I think I should be doing as a political journalist. I don't need to be in the club. I've had at least one caller call you an angel, just so you know. There's um, definitely a groundswell <laughs> of support. Isabella, thank you very much indeed for being on the programme.